Tuesday, October 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hell. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, great to be back. <laughs> uh, mini Strategy Week continues. Uh, at this moment, I am in Toronto. Um, hopefully, the U.S. government has not shut down because we're obviously taping Is this, this stra- before October 1st. Strategy Mini Week or Mini Strategy Week? Uh, strategy Mini Week. Okay. That's it. Because I was going to go with like... A maxi strategy here. No, no small strategies. Uh, the Maybe strat- small tactics. The strategy we're going to talk about: consumer goods. Uh, yesterday with Tony Arsta, it was investing in technology. But you focus on the consumer goods industry, and I suppose the first thing that investors need to know is that when thinking about, when looking at the consumer goods industry, there are really two basic parts. You got your staples, your staples, and your discretionary. That's true. That's true. Uh, and and for those out there that are wondering which is which, uh, staples are the kinds of things that you, you got to buy uh, all the time. Uh, whether it's you know basic foods or uh, basic cleaning materials or, or things like that. And uh, the discretionary is you know sort of your more high end food, your steak dinners rather than your cornflakes. Uh, it would be discretionary and and uh, a lot of other things. Do uh, restaurants you know, go into that as well? Uh, discretionary, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and there are ways that you could look at some of the, um, you know, more well-known uh, everywhere restaurants, sort of McDonald's, and, and wonder why how how discretionary that is for all of the all of its customers. But you know, there's no hard and fast rule. Um, is there is there one that is steadier than the others? It would it would seem to me that just staples by their very nature are. A steadier type of investment with maybe less upside, but possibly less risk as well. Yeah, when in two thousand eight, uh, two thousand nine, when everything was uh, going to zero, uh, stock price wise, uh, consumer uh, staples held up a, a good bit more because no matter how panicked everybody was about whether they could uh, pay their mortgage or, or whether they were going to have a job, they were still going to be finding a way to eat, and uh, so. Uh, the the real staple that the absolute necessities those companies uh, there is less upside because uh, when times are good you don't go out and eat you know twice as many Cheerios as as when you know, <laughs> times are bad but uh, you know there there's less um, you know less of a ceiling a lower ceiling for those kinds of things but a, a higher floor when times go bad. Uh, I've made this point before that uh, Ron Gross's comment to me about energy. He said, "Look, if you're going to have a balanced portfolio, you got to have a place for energy somewhere in that balanced portfolio." It seems to me, consumer goods probably fits that category as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think uh, Ron's just making stuff up with energy. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know how you have a balanced portfolio without consumer goods. It's, you know, the consumer is about seventy percent of the economy. So whether you're talking, you know, beverages, uh, food, auto parts, uh, toys, games, plastics, textiles, uh, RVs, uh, you know, there there are so many things which fall into the consumer goods category that to avoid all of that would leave you with a relatively, you know, small number of things. I also think it is the natural starting point for the average investor, for someone who is just getting started investing looking at the world of consumer goods makes the most sense because you know not everyone is an expert in biotechnology or medical devices or whatever but 
everyone is a consumer in some way, shape, or form. And so it's it's a, a lot easier to get your head around a business like, say, Starbucks, even if it is more of a discretionary thing, although I would argue that for people like you and me, it's a staple, um, than it is to get your head around some exotic technology company. Sure. And, and a good way to get your you know kids interested in investing and in just public companies or companies at all. Uh, you know, and, and, and sort of part of the Tom and David uh, lore, you know, is is being told by their father, you know, here that what you're eating, that's made by a company and you can buy shares. We own it. Go buy more pudding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, let's name a few names here because you and I have talked about the market just seemingly every two to three weeks hitting new highs and – some of these stocks that are hitting new highs, I'm not saying that they don't deserve it and that it's 1999 all over again. We're in some kind of huge bubble that's about to burst. But at the same time, I have to believe in the consumer good space. There are companies out there who have had great 2012s and 2013s. Their stocks have risen. And now, if you're smart, you're taking some money off the table. Well, certainly that's one form of uh, you know investing is is the uh, buy low, sell high, and uh, when executed well, uh, that that does make you money. Um, that said, a lot of these companies that we could name names, and we're probably going to, of, of things that look expensive uh, here in 2013, uh, also looked expensive at the beginning of the year, some of them. Something like an Under Armour, which has had a phenomenal run and has had another good year and looks uh, expensive on, on typical metrics it's something we own in a, a couple of the uh, portfolios in asset management and uh, we're going to continue to hold it because we're more interested in in being investors and possibly owning something you know uh, through some temporarily high periods but we're not we're not necessarily adding to names like that right now uh, and and there are others that we could name that we bought a while ago and have looked a little bit expensive uh, for quite a while but keep going up and we'll hold them through through that, but uh, they're not enticing to buy more of. Is there anything you, you see out there that's looking particularly cheap right now? I know value is incredibly hard or certainly harder to come by these days, what with the run of the market, but are there pockets within the consumer goods space that, if they're not cheap, they certainly haven't had the run that some of the other companies have had. Well, the, the consumer staples uh, do not look cheap, but have not had the same kind of run uh, as, as consumer discretionary. And so I, I think if you're looking to get started uh, investing in the space, looking at some of the, the classic con- consumer staples names, whether it's a Kellogg's or a smaller company like uh, Smucker's, speaking of, of coffee, they're one of the Big big coffee uh, are, sellers are they? Yeah. What do they mean? Folgers. Folgers. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and many others, and uh, something like that. It doesn't look as expensive as uh, you know the, the smaller, real, uh, sexier names: a Lululemon and Under Armour, to name a couple of apparel companies. Uh, so I, I think there's there's less risk in in the staples right now. When your colleague Tony Arsta was here and we were talking about technology, one of the things that we talked about in terms of if you're an investor and you're looking at technology, one of the things to look at is R and D spending and and how do companies go about that? 
in the consumer goods industry, what are a couple of metrics that people should be looking at to judge the health of a company? Well, I think that particularly when you're getting getting started in some of these names, it is to look at their history and to look at these these are pretty easy companies to get started with in terms of evaluating the business. Uh, so, you know, the return on investment, the return on uh, equity are, are the kinds of things I'd look at. I'd look at their traditional growth uh, metrics. Uh, these are not things that, that, unlike technology, you know, the R&D might be going on for several years before a product hits and suddenly, you know, part of the business or all the business takes off. That's that's not what you see as much of in, in consumer. A very, very small company, early on, you'll see, you know, growth in the high, you know, double digits or, or low triple digits for, for a very short period of time. But, you know, a company that can sustain above 10% top line growth is an exceptional company. And, um, and and there are several of those still out there. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, steady growth and a way to reinvest in the business, uh, something to do with its profits. Uh, so I would look at, you know, what what it does uh, in particular, the capital allocation, is it paying dividends? Is it buying back stock? Or is it going out and, and buying a bunch of other companies? Are there any companies that you can think of off the top of your head that have particular strength when it comes to pricing power? Because as you were talking, I was thinking about laundry detergent. And you know, you talk about innovation. It seems like you know the the old joke from uh, Jay Leno back when he was doing stand up in clubs was uh, it was about Tide. Boy, they're still making t- they're still improving Tide. Somehow they yet you know another year goes by and Tide detergent just keeps getting better. They and I, I just think from my own experience when I shop, I'm just looking at price. I figure all the detergents are basically fine. It doesn't really matter all that much to me, and so. The question remains: Who has the pricing power? Because uh, to me, as a consumer, that's one of those areas where I'm not paying up for something that I think is better. I'm not paying for as uh, unlike a technology company, and the best example of that being Apple, where you're paying up for brand, you're paying up for um, innovation. I'm not paying up for brand and innovation when it comes to laundry detergent. Uh, maybe not for laundry detergent, although what laundry detergent do you use? I honestly couldn't tell you. Is it a brand or is it generic? It's a brand. There you go. But it, I guarantee you- Do you have any reason to believe that it's better than the generic, which is next to it on, on at the uh, you know supermarket aisle? I have every reason to believe it was cheaper than other options. Who bought it? I bought it. You bought it, but it is a brand. It is a brand. So it's like a lower brand. I don't. I honestly, so your clothes aren't their whitest <laughs> and brightest, is what I hear you saying. It, it comes in according a big, to the commercials that I've seen. It comes in a big red jug, and it's, it's tied. It's a it's blue tied, liquid. <laughs> it's got to be. Uh, well, you're sort of a, a high level athlete. <laughs> I am not even remotely a high level athlete. Sure, you are. You're always running and in competitions. Do you own any Under Armour? products uh, um i think i i think i might have one under armor shirt yeah well did you buy it or was it you just take it from somebody at the gym or, or what i bought it yeah well there's a little bit of, of pricing power because okay. they seem to be and are, are understood to by 
the public to have some special technologies in, in their shirts, which mm-hmm. magically grab the sweat from your body and, and change it into, I don't know, perfume, perfume or unicorn, you know, dust or something. And, and that's not the case. I mean, not just that it doesn't get turned into perfume, but it's, it's not any special technology that others don't also have access to. Uh, but they've done a good job of getting into people's minds as being the company that makes these shirts the best. And so that that is a certain amount of, of brand loyalty that they have and pricing power. And, and, uh, and you probably paid more for that shirt than, you know, something else in the store. So for someone who is an investor and is thinking, I want companies that have any number of strengths, and one of those strengths is pricing power – then is it fair to conclude that you're much more likely to find a consumer goods company that has pricing power on the discretionary side and less likely to find it on the staple side? Well, I, mm, yes, I guess. That, that is, the discretionary stuff can have almost an infinitely high uh, amount that people are willing to pay uh, at, at their discretion, uh, whereas as staples are a little bit more competitive. But you know the the great brands out there do have pricing power and sell so much that that, that couple pennies here and there adds up you know across millions and millions of consumers we were talking earlier today you mentioned on a, a company on the discretionary side that i wouldn't have immediately thought of uh when i think of consumer goods you mentioned disney sure why do you think of disney as a as being in the consumer goods space well, because you're not forced to go – well, it, it, as compared to Staples, obviously, you're not forced to go to Disneyland. You're not forced to go out to the movies. But you you have been. Mm-hmm. You, you've been recently. Yes. To, to, and and how, how was that in terms of spending money at Disney World? Uh, it was a couple of years ago, and uh, you and our colleague Bill Mann gave me some great advice because you'd taken your families to Disney World before, and I believe – the three words that uh, Bill Mann said that you immediately agreed with were just let go, just like just don't think about. Yes, you're going to spend you're going to spend a lot of money when once you're inside the park. Just let go, just accept it. Yeah, and you do, and 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 you get and enough uh, people are out there who uh, go back again and again and feel good about you know what they got for their money, uh, but you know Disney is not trying to deliver uh you know a a a low priced uh vacation to you uh, while you're there right uh they're they're perfectly willing to you know go high on quality and high on price and uh boy they've got phenomenal a phenomenal brand and you know they're in a lot of different consumer spaces and they, they also you know get their images out there on a lot of products you probably got things all over your house for for the kids and in almost every category from I know plastic cups that are lying around still from your yeah. kids' younger days, and all the videotapes, and even you know DVDs back when we bought those for the kids, uh, and and so that's all you know being sold digitally, or, or a lot of it is now. But uh, they're in almost any consumer you know space you can think of, in, in a lot of you know cases, just licensing the Disney name, the Disney characters out to somebody else uh, to do all the work and, and production. Disney also has uh, at the top Bob Iger, who is probably making just about anyone's short list of uh, really great CEOs in America. It, it's, and it, one of the reasons for that? Easy act to follow. 
easy act to follow. Yes, because Eisner. One of my rules of life, find easy acts to follow. Bob Iger did. Bob Iger in following, it was Michael Eisner, wasn't yeah. it? Well, it was only really the last 15 years of, of Eisner's time at Disney that was an easy act to follow. That is good advice. And it mentioned, bringing it back to another company you mentioned, Lululemon, Christine Day, uh, no longer the CEO, that's a tough act to follow. <laughs> so <laughs> whoever's going to be the next CEO of Lululemon, good luck because you have an incredibly tough act to follow. Um, is is there a common thread uh, that we should look for in leadership because uh, at consumer goods companies? And maybe there isn't, but it just seems like – Look, at The Motley Fool, we look at leadership. Leadership matters to us because there are actual people running these companies. Um, Certainly someone like a a Bob Iger or even a Christine Day, uh, she hasn't been at Lululemon for as long as Iger's been at Disney, uh, but she did a heck of a job while she was there. Um, So I'm wondering, is is there anything in particular we should be looking for, um, or is it just something to take note of, but there's no one box that we need to check with the CEO at a consumer goods company. Yeah, I don't know that there's any any one box that uh, that I can think of to check on that one. And in Iger's case, a lot of it comes down to people skills, and and that's a little bit different, I think, uh, than what uh, you know Day uh, had. I mean, vision in in both cases. So you know, somebody that can communicate a, a vision that's uh, you know of what you want in your investment uh, for Disney. I think that. That's and, and for Lululemon, they have more high-profile things that you might ascribe to where the brand is going than, than something like I don't know, uh, you know, a company that reported last week, Thor Industries, which is far less known but a great investment over the last uh, 10, 15 years uh, in in the RV industry, and that that also qualifies as a very discretionary thing uh, to spend on, and and uh, it's it's. Um, something that we own and and i i can't think of you know what it is that that unites that and and the other two companies in one metric but they all uh, are are dominating their their categories i have to believe with Iger that his ability to incorporate the acquisitions that he's made i think that is a a, a great clue now obviously it's a clue that I discover in hindsight, but I think to the extent that you can see, because as we've talked about before, acquisitions and making acquisitions work is notoriously difficult to pull off. And historically, most acquisitions don't really work out all that well. But Iger's ability to buy Pixar and incorporate that into the Disney empire, to buy Marvel and incorporate that, I think that anytime you find a CEO who can do, who has a history of pulling off and incorporating acquisitions in a strong way that really helps the overall company, I think that's probably a great clue. Yeah. And well, I think that in the case of Pixar, it was such such a natural that they had Pixar and Disney had worked closely together on right. every single movie uh, that, that Pixar had done. They were in the same business. Uh, that That to me is less impressive uh, just because they had established what they could do together, uh, even though, you know, the Pixar was an independent operation. Marvel is, to me, more impressive in that even though it's a, a category that Disney is thoroughly familiar with, you know, entertainment, uh, movie entertainment for, you know, designed uh, first for kids, 
um, still, that that was not a company that was within the Disney umbrella in any particular sense. Uh, and and given their success working with Marvel and letting Marvel's people continue to do what they had been doing well before getting to Disney and not Disneyfying in a in a bad way, right. you know what the the products that Marvel was doing. Uh, I think as as also made the acquisition of Star Wars that that palatable, you know, uh, for people uh, that people don't assume. Oh, now that it's being done by Disney, we're going to see, you know, some sort of you know talking bluebirds in in the Star Wars next movie. <laughs> Um, in fact, maybe we'll see less of the, the Jar Jar Banks and talking Ewoks say. and things. Yeah, you know. as long as there are no Ewoks and no Jar Jar Banks, I think everybody wins. That. And easy act to follow. Easy <laughs> act to follow. Bill Barker, thank you for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.